This is Recognize, a podcast about the NHL's black and biracial hockey heroes, proudly supported by eBay Canada. Ever since I was a kid, I collected hockey cards with spare change my dad gave me. As a black person, to see others like me on the ice inspired me. They were my role models and showed me hockey is a game for everyone. I've collected 100 rookie cards for NHL's black and biracial players, and I'm going to talk to all of them so you can learn their stories. Please welcome Cats alumnus Bill Riley. Bill Riley made his NHL debut with the Capitals in 1974, becoming the first black Nova Scotian to play in the NHL and the third black player to play in the league. Bill Riley was born in 1950 in Amherst, Nova Scotia. He played for the Washington Capitals and Winnipeg Jets between 1974 and 1980. He went on to a successful coaching career and was inducted into the Nova Scotia Sport Hall of Fame. Bill's story is one of unlikely rise from poverty in rural Nova Scotia to NHL stardom. Hi, Bill. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. So you were the third Black player to play in the NHL following Willie O'Ree and Mike Marzen. What uh, thoughts come to mind when you reflect upon this accomplishment? Well... You know, at I, I at the time I was just a guy who wanted to play hockey and couldn't believe that, you know, I was I was, I was living a dream. I mean, I uh, I I grew up every Saturday night watching Hockey Night in Canada and studying the goaltenders, studying the players, and and that type of thing. So when I actually skated on the ice uh, with Mike Marsden back in 1974 against the Philadelphia Flyers, I mean, I was uh, I was a deer in the headlights. So you talked about the. Uh... Washington Capitals, the first team you played for. And um, I have a hockey card that uh, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. It's uh, your first rookie card with uh, Washington Capitals. can only see you in the photo. And uh, what comes to mind? Do you remember when that photo was taken? Can you share that experience with us? No, actually, I had, I, um, I mean, that was the last thing on my mind. I didn't, uh, I did not even know they were going to, I didn't know anything about hockey cards, actually. I used to say baseball cards when I was a kid, but, uh, the, uh, you know, I mean, it's a tremendous honor anytime it's, you know, like, uh, I was, you know, like I said, I come from a small town in Amherst and, you know, I guess I beat the odds, uh, cause nobody would have, uh, you know, given me a, snow, a snowball's chance in hell of, of making it all the way to the national hockey league. And then, you know, later on in life, you know, to have two or three or four hockey cards from the National Hockey League. Uh, you know, I was never one to beat my own drum. My my kids were always telling me, my girls were, were always telling me, Dad, you never talk about yourself. You never talk about yourself. And I'll tell you, I didn't even know I was the first African Nova Scotian to play in the National Hockey League. I didn't know that. Uh, Jerry Meehan, who was my teammate and then be, went on to be the general manager of the Buffalo Sabres, he said, Billy, Riley was the first player of color to play meaningful minutes in the National Hockey League. I wasn't even aware of that. So, you know, now at uh, 65, 70 years old, I'm finding things out about myself and some of the accomplishments that uh, that I had made that I, I didn't even realize I did. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty special to look upon that and now reflect upon uh, some of those achievements. So um, 
Tell us what it was like growing up in um, Nova Scotia. What was it like uh, growing up in the uh, Riley household? Well, they, you know, there was uh, there were five five children. My my mother and father, and you know, my mother was a domestic, and uh, you know, she worked. Uh, she got very very little money. Worked hard to she cleaned the uh, doctors and the lawyers and the rich folks' homes, and uh, you know, usually come home with her day's pay in in a grocery bag because. Uh, I mean, I believe when she started off, she was getting $2 a day and then she was up to five. And I remember her getting to seven or $8 a day. And, uh, you know, I just thought what a strong woman and what an incredible woman. And how did she ever feed? How did she ever feed five kids with that little bit of money? My dad, uh, my dad was in the, uh, military for a number of years, ne- never stayed in long enough to get a pension or anything. And, and all he knew, he didn't have a lot of uh, education, so all he did was hard, hard labor work and uh, and got very little pay as well. So, you know, times were hard and, uh, you know, we played, uh, We you know, we did the best we could. Uh, I, I talked to some of my friends I grew up with today and we talk about everybody thought they were the poorest family and uh, we didn't we didn't realize what some of the other families were going through as well, but... You know, the thing was in our family, we always had enough to eat and, uh, you know, we always had clothes to wear. So, you know, I, I kudos to my parents for being able to make that happen. That's very remarkable. So when did you start playing uh, ice hockey? Can, can you remember and share with us when it all started? Well, my friend came to me one day and he was saying, oh, let's go play minor hockey because we played road hockey. We played road hockey every day. And when the ponds froze over, then we'd be out and we'd play on the ponds outdoors. And, and uh, you know, you'd play there until your mother called you in for supper type of thing. And uh, we had a bit of a rink in our backyard that my father made. And uh, like I said, we, we, just, we just played steady, played steady, played steady. And then my friend came to me one day and said, look, let's go sign up for minor hockey. And uh, I said, well, I, I don't have any money. I, I, how am I going to, how are we going to, it just not, doesn't cost anything. He said, it doesn't cost anything. And uh, so we went over and we put our names forth in this type of thing. And we were so excited about being able to play on natural ice for the first time. And I'm going to tell you a story that's true as God is in heaven. When we went for our first tryout, my cousin and I were both wearing catalogs for shin pads, and we had it tied up with, uh, they called it binder twine back in the day. That's what you, uh, that's what you, uh, they did the bales of hay and the bales of straw with. They used this type of rope, and that's what we used to try to tie these catalogs on. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, well, lo and behold, that day, that we were, we were a day early. And then, of course, somebody seen seen us wearing catalogs, and they got us a couple of old shin pads with the uh, with the sticks in them. There would be a cap on the knee, and then there'd be sticks for padding down the uh, the inside of them. And uh, and that's what we wore. We didn't have we did we didn't have gear. I mean, I can remember my best friend growing up, him and I on the same team sharing one pair of skates. You know, like he he I'd be. When I'd be on the first line, he'd he'd be on the third line, and then I, we'd switch. And uh, like I said, and we were sharing ho- sharing hockey sticks and sharing baseball gloves. We never had a whole lot. 
So, and obviously this is outdoor rinks. You're talking about the 1950s and early 60s, I guess, right? Yeah, well, it was, it was the 60s because I never started playing hockey. I was, I was a late starter. I never started playing until I believe, yes, yeah, so I was at the peewee age when I got to play. So about 12 years old, the, okay. Yeah, I missed the, the 12 or 13, yeah. So I missed the first couple of divisions. And, of course, not playing. Well, I wasn't a very strong skater. And uh, I remember I always uh, used to watch Hockey Night in Canada. And I always wanted to play center where they dropped the puck so I could take the face off. And <laughs> but I, put, I ended up in the net my first year. My, my Maybe my, my first year, year and a half, two years, because I didn't skate very well. And uh, so they put me in the net. and But I, you know, I was very, very competitive uh, I wanted to win everything, even in road hockey. And uh, so eventually, you know, I got out and I got to play out. And I always had a knack for scoring goals. And I uh, I built a net at uh, my parents' house out of uh, two-by-fours. You know, I just got them out of the old two-by-fours. And I and I got the measurements of the net. And then we had feed bags at the feed. Uh, my grandfather had a farm. And uh, the feed, uh, they used to get the feed for the horses and the cattle and and uh, take those feed bags, and I made the netting, and I used to I'd put the net up at the back of the house, and I'd shoot, and I'd shoot, and I'd shoot, and I'd shoot, and every year my father had to re-shingle the back of the house type of thing. But uh, I got to the point where I could really hit what I was shooting at, you know, most times. So, uh, so you know, as again, coming up into the uh, junior programs at home, and stuff I usually led the team in scoring and I led the team in goals, right? Yeah. So the East Coast has a rich history of um, African Nova Scotians' contributions to uh, hockey. Did this sort of feed into your inspiration to play the game? Were there other family members or other kids who looked like you you're playing against as a, at a young age? Well, yeah, there was the older generation in front of me. There were a lot of very, very good black hockey players. And, uh, you know, I was fascinated, but I was saying, what, Jesus, uh, you know, when I reflect back now and I realized how talented some of these guys were, but yet they never got any opportunities to play for the senior team or to go anyplace else. And, uh, so, you know, that, uh, well, I didn't realize that until after I got out and I got playing professional hockey and, you know, knowing how to assess talent and, reflecting back on how good these guys were if somebody had to gave them a chance. And one of the, the thorns in my side that really, really bothers me is we had a hell of a black hockey player in Toronto, Nova Scotia by the nook, by the name of Stan uh, Chuck Maxwell. And I, I'm mad. How come I grew up and didn't know about Chuck Maxwell? You know, how come I didn't know about him? Chuck won the scoring race. Uh, three years in a row down the International League with the Toledo Hockey Club down there. And uh, Chuck and his brothers and a couple cousins came when I played in Hershey, came down to see me play. They were on a golf trip. And, you know, Chuck was another guy, never talked about himself. I didn't know when he was visiting me in Hershey that he had the accomplishments that he had accomplished in professional hockey back in even a harder time before I played. And I just, it just blows me away that how come I didn't know about him? How, you know, cause I was a hockey nut. I, I, there was, I mean, I knew the name of every player on every team when it was a 16 league back in the day. And I said, here's a guy 45 minutes down the road 
a man of color that was a hell of a hockey player. And uh, I didn't know anything about him. And, you know, I did get to meet him. Uh, like I said, he was down in Hershey. Then I got to meet him, uh, where else? In Halifax once. But he, back then, I didn't know. Still, when I was met him, in, I didn't know. And I, and I would have loved to sit down and heard the stories and heard what he had to go through, you know? Yeah, yeah, very surprising, eh, that that uh, promotion and uh, awareness just didn't come your way. I, it's uh, very surprising. Yeah, I like it's just you know, like I said, uh, you know, and hopefully I, I've, I've been lived a good enough life that I get to the other side and I have an opportunity to sit down and and, and discuss it with them. But you know, like I said, uh, you know, for a man of color to go to a professional hockey league and win the scoring race three years in a row. That is a tremendous accomplishment. Yeah, very true. And again, it sort of speaks to the uh, numerous um, African Nova Scotians that were really having an impact and for whatever reason uh, did not get the opportunity. Um, so let's let's talk about your, um, you had a remarkable story making it to the NHL already. You've told us that you didn't start playing until you were 12. And then I think you had unconventional route to actually make and be signed by Washington. So maybe take us from those teen years to the NHL? Well, I went on to play junior hockey and I, I led my team and we had a look, we were junior B and we played in what's called the Maritime Junior A League now. And I, uh, I, you know, I led, I led my team in scoring every year. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, they, they started a, uh, a junior A league, uh, in the Maritimes back then, it'd be like a major junior team. They had uh, the Halifax Junior Canadians, and they had the Charlottetown Islanders, and they had the Cape Breton Metros teams in Cape Breton, and those, those types of things. I, I got called down to play for these Junior Canadians, and uh, I had five points in five games, and I had probably, I would say in five games, I would have had probably 50 minutes in penalties. And, uh, anyways, I had, you know, I had a bunch of fights, uh, while I was there as well. And we come back from Cape Breton road trip and, uh, I, uh, we, uh, we didn't win. We lost both games in Cape Breton and, uh, anyways, come back. So the coach put us on the ice and the wet gear and we're skating like as soon as we get off the bus and this type of thing. And there was no pucks. And, and actually there was one puck on the ice and this, our captain had it, and uh, so I took it from him, and I was skating around with it. When I came around by him the next time, he, he two-handed me and dropped the gloves and came at me. And uh, I, I proceeded to give him quite a spanking, and, uh, and I was just defending myself. And I got kicked off the team, you know? And uh, <laughs> that's been a sore spot with me all the rest of my career I'm say all I did was defend myself yet I was the guy that got kicked off the team and I was averaging a point a game you know uh, so from there I went back and I finished out with the junior club in Amherst and when I graduated from junior hockey uh, a gentleman by the name of Gary Lewis came home for his father's funeral and he was uh, working up in northern BC for the lonely smeller the elk Elkan. And uh, he said, the local senior team's looking for hockey players. If you come out, you'll get a job. And I believe back then it was, you know, I'd get 7 or $8 an hour, which home we were getting too. 
So I, I, you know, I didn't even hesitate because of the hockey. So I went out there and played. And uh, I won the scoring race out there three years in a row and set uh, set all kinds of league records and that type of thing. And, and that's where I got scouted. And I had the opportunity uh, to go to uh, Philadelphia or Washington. I chose Washington because they were an expansion team. But I'm sort of getting a little bit ahead of myself. So what happened was they used to have uh, the pros would come into the hockey school in Kitimat. And they they'd come in and they teach hockey school every summer, and then they'd scrimmage at night, and uh, then we would have what a pro am game. So our senior club guys would play against those guys, and uh, I'm going, Jesus, I think I'm as good as these guys. And uh, so I asked a couple of guys, we're having a few pops after the game, and I said, Do you think I could play pro hockey? And they said. Uh, I think you can. I think you can pro, play pro hockey quite easily. They say, "Can you fight?" I said, "Yeah, I can fight. I'm very, I'm a very good fighter." I said, "I grew up in a real tough neighborhood, and you had to be one or two things: a good fighter or a good runner." And I said, "I'm both," <laughs> you know. And uh, so that's that's how you know. Like I say, I went through my amateur career and then got the opportunity to go to the Washington Capitals training camp. Were there some future NHLers you remember playing with as a young kid or through those junior uh, experiences, whether it was in the uh, East Coast or in BC? I mean, uh, you know, there was the Kennedy boys from the island that went on to play in the National Hockey League and the World Hockey Association. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to, I just, I'm trying to remember that. I think Earl Thompson might have been one of the guys that was playing in Halifax at the time. Uh, I yeah, Gordy Gallant, who went on to be a WHA tough man. He was the guy that when he made it, when I watched him on TV, I was playing senior hockey out in British Columbia, and I, I watched him uh, playing in uh, on TV with the Minnesota Fighting Saints. And I said, by Jesus, if he can play uh, pro hockey, I said, I, I damn well can play. And uh, and Gordy was a hell of a fighter, and, and as as was I. And uh, anyways. Uh, so he inspired me and gave me the inspiration and the, and the drive to just keep working and keep working and not take no for an answer, you know? So your timing was pretty good with the expansion of the NHL in the early 70s and WHA. So you had some options for uh, pro hockey. And then you, um, you did say you had a choice between Philadelphia and Washington. You ended up signing with Washington. So let, let's move forward then to... Um, your recall on your first official NHL like league game. Do you remember? And can you tell us about that? They they assigned me to Dayton. We had the training camp in London, Ontario, and uh, I, you know, uh, I think that was Mike Marison's first year. They had drafted Mike at eighteen, and I had a pretty good camp. And uh, they said, uh, uh, God, how can I word this? Uh, you know, they said. Uh, Basically, that I I showed good in the camp. I looked good, and uh, I will go to I will be going to Dayton and make five thousand, and other guys will be going to Washington and be making eighty thousand. And uh, so when I went to Dayton, I thought, okay, I I'm I'm going to play for the Dayton Gems. I, I made the t- team. Well, I was wrong. I had to go through another training camp in Dayton in order to make the team, and. Uh, you know, and I played a, you know, I was pretty physical in those training camps. 
I remember, God bless his soul, Billy Taylor told me, he said, hit everything that moves, he said. And that's what I did in Washington, at the, in the camp in London. And uh, I think I've only got knocked off my feet once in both of those training camps. But uh, anyways, uh, I went to Dayton, and, and Tommy McVeigh took a, took a shine into me. And uh, I played on the third line. It was myself and another guy named Brian Stapleton. And, and uh, if he played good, he was on the third line, and I'd be on the fourth line. If he didn't, if he had an off game, I'd be on the third line. He'd be on the fourth line. We go back and forth. So my first year, uh, I had uh, I scored 13 goals and I had 14 assists or something, and uh, uh, and I had 300 minutes and penalties. And uh, but I got called up that year for one game to the Washington Capitals, and the first NHL game I ever seen in my life, I was playing in it, and. The capital off, they started me on the starting lineup. So I was standing out on the blue line for the uh, for the national anthem. And I was shaking so bad. I was trying to hold my legs. I said, I hope nobody's looking at me. I was shaking so bad. So the first NHL game I ever seen, I was playing in. And it was a good experience for me because I, I was not ready to play at the National Hockey League level then. I was not, not nowhere near ready. And I got sent back to Dayton. And uh, anyways, I went home in the summertime. And I said, you know what? I can play in that internationally. I can play in that league. And I can play good in that league. So I went back the next year. And I had 33 goals. And a bunch of stuff made the all-star team. And that type of thing. And uh, uh, still, I never got any, never got a look from Washington. So the next my year three in Dayton, I went back. And uh, I was leading the team in three or four categories. And my mother-in-law died. So I went home for a funeral. And when I came back, and while I was gone, I don't think they won very much. And uh, so I, I come back, and I, I hadn't been on the ice in a couple of weeks. And we were playing in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And they had bought in two tough guys from the Western League. So I just went in the dressing room. I went in the bathroom. I vas put the Vaseline on the on the eyes, fast off, face up, and stuff like that. And I went after both of their, their two new tough guys and and uh, did a pretty good job on them. So the next day, I went to the uh, dressing room. I was in the dressing room. I was talking to the uh, coach and general manager, Larry Mickey, God bless his soul. And I said to Mick, I said, Mick, I got offered a good job when I was home, and if I don't get a chance to go up, I said, I'm leading the team in three or four categories, and uh, guys are going up around me, and... I know I'm a better player. I know I'm a tougher player, right? So if I'm not going to get an opportunity, I'm going to take the job. Well, by the Jesus, it wasn't two days later. I was on my way to Washington, right? And uh, for uh, what the, a 10-game trials, but the uh, I played so well in the 10 games. I scored a few goals, and, and I'd had a couple of fights. So they ended up having to keep me, you know, type of thing. But prior to that, in, in communication with the guys back in Dayton it was in the paper that I'd be back in Dayton on that Tuesday. And, uh, but like I said, it, it, I played so well that, that they basically, uh, were forced to keep me. And, uh, and I went on to get rookie of the year that year. Oh, wow. Rookie of the year for the team. Uh, yeah. Rookie of the year for the team. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, I'll tell you another, the other story was when I, uh, you know, like, 
I had to keep my mouth shut for a lot of years, a lot of years. I heard a lot of things and turned a deaf ear to a lot of things being a man of color. And uh, uh, my teammates were great. I got to say, my teammates in Dayton were great. My teammates in Washington were great. And Winnipeg also. And uh, everywhere I played, I was very, very, very popular player. And uh, got along very well with my teammates. So my coach comes in and tells me after my 10 games that uh, we're going to sign you. You know, you get, you'll be in the office tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. Well, I said, the, the buses uh, or the, yeah, the bus for the airport's leaving that, you know, and I'm going to say at nine o'clock because we're playing in Buffalo that night. So he said, Oh no, you're going to fly in later on. Right. They got to put this contract together for you. Right. I'm, I could hardly sleep that night. I, I just, I was so excited. I'm going to sign, you know, like an NHL contract. And, uh, so I, uh, go into the office and, uh, sit down and I talk and, uh, Max McNabb and, uh, was going to sign you. And, uh, he offered me $35,000 with no signing bonus. And my heart just sunk, right? It just sunk. I, I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I couldn't believe the insult that this man was throwing at me. And uh, because back in the day, they had the Broad Street Bullies and the Big Bad Bruins. And every team back in that era had, you know, a couple of guys on the bench that got tapped on the shoulder once or twice a, a, a game to go fight. And these guys were making six figures. So I, I talked to him. I said, Jesus, you got to do a little better than that. I said, I got, you know, I said, I got three children. And. I'd like to have a decent car and this type of thing. And I said, what about a signing bonus? Oh, there's no signing bonus. He said, no signing bonus. And uh, I said, hey, you know, the fix is in here. What am I, you know? So finally, he gave $1,500 as a signing bonus. Only if I didn't sign the contract. He said, I got two airline tickets on the, on the debt, my desk there. One back to Dayton and one to Buffalo where you'll join the teammates. You sign the contract, you go to Buffalo. You don't sign the contract, you go back to Dayton. Well, I was making $11,000 in Dayton. So I, I had to, I was, they held me ransom or hostage, whatever you want to call it. I, sold, I signed the contract for $35,000. Uh, I went to Buffalo, my first game. I went to Buffalo, I had three points that night. And, uh, you know, I felt like going back in now, am I worth it? You know, just, they wouldn't never pay me. And, uh, so I got rookie of the year that year. And then, uh, I got, I signed a new two year with an option at for 50,000. Right. But then when I looked at my, when I looked at my base salary, now here I am, I was playing meaningful minutes. I was over the boards every third time I was out in, I was out at the end of every period. And the end of every yeah, the end of every period and, and the end of the game, they get the puck out of my own end because I was good defensively. I was the first plus player in the history of the Washington Capitals, and I got uh, uh, and then somehow somebody got the pay got the got the payrolls, and when they published it in the paper, I was at the I was at the bottom. So I just that's yeah, just terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I, I could play. I was good offensively. I was good defensively and I could fight. And like I said, there were guys getting a hundred grand just to, just to get the tap on the shoulder once or twice a game to go fight somebody. And so, but again, I, I couldn't rock the boat. I couldn't say nothing. I just, you know, like 
what am I going to do? Right. I, they, they got me. What am I going to do? Yeah. Management, uh, management held a lot of the cards back then. And it's a shame that, uh, even from a free agent standpoint that, uh, you know, another team may have even considered you as well. I'm surprised, but, but that didn't seem to happen as much back then. Right. In terms of options for other teams. No, no, no. And, uh, you know, so I, uh, I was having a pretty good year, my, my second year and I severed attendance. So eight weeks, I would have been, they, they said, you're going to be out at eight weeks. I was back in six. I was, I worked my butt off, worked my butt off and, and, uh, and got, but so I ended up my first year, I had 13 goals and 14 assists and 40 games, 42 games. So the next year, oh, I played 55, 57 games or something. I had 13 goals again. I played pretty well the same thing, but out of that 57 games, probably 12 to 15 of those games was playing myself back from the injury. You, you yeah, see what your, your numbers were very good, uh, and, and especially I think the listeners should know too that the team you're on was the expansion team and not very strong at all, and that that puts uh, challenges on all the players, including the young players. So it's remarkable the statistics you had for a team that was not good for a number of years. Yeah, and that's I mean I didn't have you know or I'll, I'll say we we didn't have uh, you know Bobby or Ray Bork or any of those top D getting us getting the puck up to us forwards back in the day you know and uh, so you know, what you accomplished so anyways uh you know I, I just started to hit top form again at the end of the year I ended up with 13 goals so if you look at uh and I remember Tommy McVie saying to me in my first year he said if you got 13 goals in 40 some games if you play the full year you know you're 25 30 goal scoring in the National Hockey League and uh yeah, and uh, it was the same the second year, right? Because, like I said, probably twelve of those games I played at about seventy-five percent. And uh, anyways, I seen Max after that second year, and uh, oh, thirteen goals again, he says. And the way he said it to me, I said, "Jesus, that didn't sound right. Didn't sound right." So the next year, we went back to training camp. Now, here I am. I'm the fifth leading scorer on the Washington Capitals, you know, and I only played 50-some games. So of the 20 guys that dressed every night, I'm number five in the, in the scoring. So I go back to training camp that year, and, uh, you know, and, I, and, and if you ever speak with Tommy McVie, he'll tell you about my work, work ethic, and he'll tell you about my conditioning. You know, second to none. Come first in everything in dry land, right? And uh, anyways, uh, Mike Myers and I, the, the training camp was in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And uh, we're probably uh, just about through the whole training camp. And Mike Myers and I are coming back from lunch. And we walk into Hershey Arena and the reporters are running at us like we're Wayne Gretzky, uh, uh, you know, and Bobby Orr. And then we're going, what the hell's going on? What the hell's going on? That's how we found out that we got sent down. Mike got sent to Binghamton, and I got sent I got sent to Hershey. And that's how we found out. We didn't even have the courtesy of calling us in the office like they do with everybody else. 
and assign you wherever. And uh, that's been something that's bothered me over the years. But again, I didn't want to ruin it for other kids of color coming up, so I said nothing about it. But that's hard hard to believe, you know. And uh, plus the fact was, plus the fact is that I could fight. You know, I could fight. I was I wasn't afraid of anybody. I fought Tiger Williams. I fought Schultz. I fought all the all the guys in the league. And uh, yeah, nineteen seventy six. You had forty three games, twenty seven points, one hundred twenty four penalty minutes. Yeah. So you know that's a lot. That's a lot of activity. Yeah. A full full complete player. Yeah, yeah. And again, being a plus player, so I just uh, you know I had I, I there was no way I deserved to be sent down. I was. You know, one of the, you know, I, I was playing on the top two lines, you know? And, uh, so I just could never, ever understand it. But again, I could, I couldn't rock the boat and, uh, you know, and then I got, and, uh, then I got picked up the, by Winnipeg in the, uh, the expansion draft, right? If you're enjoying Recognize and thinking about starting your own hockey card collection, I'd suggest you start with eBay. eBay is all about connecting communities and fueling passions. Because of its thriving card collector community, I was able to make my dream come true by collecting the rookie cards of the NHL's black and biracial players. Start your own collection at ebay.ca slash hockey cards. I wanted to uh, just have you touch on, it's never a great experience talking about the... uh, the racism in, in that you experienced, you did talk about um, your players and teammates, uh, the teammates being very, uh, very good to you. Um, but you, you, you experienced a lot of um, incidents with uh, Dayton, I believe, and maybe you can speak about Washington after that, but could you maybe just share with the listeners some of the things that you have had to uh, confront playing in terms of um, fans, uh, fans of the game? The fans were, the fans were brutal. I mean, they, you know, uh, like Dayton. And what what year is it? This is like the mid seventies, right? Dayton, nineteen seventy four. Mid seventies, seventy four, seventy five, seventy six. Uh, the uh, the Dayton fans were. You're, you're playing in a league that that sorry, you're playing in a league that goes really. It's um, I guess the United States predominantly, right? The IHL, yeah, international yeah. hockey league, yeah. All the all the U.S. teams, the international hockey league, okay. and uh, okay. Yeah. The thing was, is one thing I want to make very clear, though, is is that the, the people in Dayton treated me like a king. They treated me very good, and I never heard any racial slur in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, you know, the, they had a Dayton Gems Booster Club there, and they, they were very good to my family and I, and, uh, you know, they they helped us a lot. And I got nothing but good things to say about uh, the people of Dayton, Ohio. Uh, when I went into Toledo different story when i went into columbus different story uh they uh, can you just share uh, some examples of some things well the uh uh kalamazoo michigan I'll, I'll have to tell you about that one but anyways i went into uh, we used to call toledo and they used to call it the ohio state turnpike series and they start their five toughest guys we we start our five toughest guys one second off the clock, and it'd be a five-on-five line, line bro. And I tell people that that movie, Slapshot, is not exaggerated a whole lot. And anyways, 
So I get into a fight and uh, I, uh, I, I give the guy a pretty good beating. And I'm over in the penalty box. On, that's on the other side, away from our rink, away from our, our bench. And they're giving it to me. They're giving it to me. They're like, oh, my God, they're just giving it to me. So anyways, I serve my five minutes. I get out of the box. Guy comes out to me. He says, you think you're tough? He says, let's go. So bang, we go again, and I beat him. So I get back to the bench after serving the second five. And uh, I'm sitting there, and I'm going, this is, this is not for me. This is not for me. And in those days, uh, the, the people, you're setting – the, the four lines would just rotate over three, three benches, and uh, the bench, the high bench, the people behind you could touch you. And uh, so, anyways, I go back out for my. Uh, I go, I'm going. I I don't really care if he puts me back out there again, right? Because I was thinking about a quick bus back to Nova Scotia, with all this violence and stuff. I never seen that before. I mean, I seen a little bit in Canada, but nothing like this. So then. I, uh, I, um, uh, coach pushed me out again. So we, I get out there and we at the face off circle and I just hear the, the crowd just buzzing, just buzzing, just buzzing. And, uh, you know, you can hear the roar. And I said, what the hell's going on? So anyways, they're tough, they're tough guy. They're, they're big, their big guy comes over the boards. Right. I'll tell you, I even remember his name. God bless his soul. He passed away, but he was the only amateur the only minor league player to be on the front page of the of the hockey news and his name was paul tanzardini and uh he uh, uh he had i think like 500 some minutes in penalties one year so anyways we square off and i win that fight as well and uh so now i'm kicked out of the game so when i'm being kicked out of the game I have to go down through the fans and down through the uh, alleyway to the, to the dressing room. And they're throwing beer on me and popcorn and spitting and screaming and hollering. I mean, like, just like a lynch mob, right? And so then I get into the, I go into the uh, dressing room. I take the bench, put it up against the door and I got to hold it there, you know, cause I want to make sure that they're not going to come in and get me cause my teammates are still on the ice. I mean, you know, I was, I feared that. I feared that they'd come in. I was never, I never feared fighting a man one-on-one, -on -one, but I didn't think I could beat a mob. So anyway, at the, uh, at the end of uh, the game, you know, we got on the bus, we went back to Dayton and I'm thinking all the night, I said, Jesus, you know, is this what's going to happen? This, this is really not for me. Right. Uh, and type of thing. And, uh, and Tommy at that time knew I was tough, but didn't know that I could score like I could score. And uh, anyways, I was half thinking about, uh, I was half thinking about uh, going home and uh, he comes on the ice for practice and he goes, Riles, he says, every team in the league's trying to trade for you. So they heard what went on in Dayton last night. Right. And they, and uh, I didn't realize that I fought three of the toughest guys in the league and done quite well against them. So, and then and in Toledo, they used to have five cent beer night there. And Teddy, terrible Teddy Garvin was coaching the team and he had them revved up and, and they would sell out. And then they had a pavilion uh, across from the rink and that they would sell on, uh, you know, five cent beer night. And uh, they would uh, uh, put another two, two or 3,000 people in that pavilion 
all flopped up on the syrup five cent beer. So every time we went to Toledo, that's what it was. But thank God I had Stan Jonathan on my team. I had Gordy Lane on my team. We had a tough hockey club, you know, Larry Belonchuk, Billy Billy Best from Nova Scotia. We had a tough hockey club. So we anything they threw at us, we could certainly handle. Sure. Yeah, it is important for everyone to understand um, just that era, how tough you had to be as a hockey player. So the bonus was uh, you were a complete hockey player that could score, but just um, just the uh, preparation you have to be have each game to be ready that you have to step up, right? It uh, was very, very calm. It was like the fastest gun in the West, right? I mean, to get around the league, you fought this guy, you fought that guy, and everybody was trying to knock you off type of thing. And uh, like I said, I had uh, I had some family that lived in Kalamazoo, Michigan, my aunt and my three cousins, and I'd get them tickets, and they'd come to the game and watch me play. So we were playing in the playoffs one year there, and they, used to be, they had a, t- a tough kid there too named Lynn, Lynn Arcandia. And, and Lynn and I used to go all the time, Dayton, uh, Dayton you know, uh, Kalamazoo, didn't matter. We'd go and, you know, we'd have our tilts and stuff like that. And, of course, my crowd would be hollering for me in Dayton. His crowd would be hollering for him in Kalamazoo. But what really put it over the top was when we went into Kalamazoo in the playoffs one year. And they had this great big eight with a, my number seven Dayton gem sweater on it with a with a, uh, a noose around its neck hanging from the rafters, and uh, I I just said, how come nobody's doing anything about this? You know, I'm Washington Capitals property. How come you know that people have to get wind of this? Like this isn't something that people are are going to leave. The, this is something that people are going to leave the ring talking about, and everybody's going to know. But there's a reporter who's there. How come you know nobody's coming to my aid? How come nobody's cutting this this big eight down type of thing? And uh, so it shouldn't shouldn't just shouldn't just be your problem. Um, it should be everyone's problem, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, your team, the other team, the league. Everyone. Yeah, yeah, the league and I. And uh, you know, uh, I just uh, uh, but but again, my teammates always had my back. My teammates. Always had my back. I I was very fortunate. I got to play with some great guys, you know. And the other thing in Toledo, they used to, the Oregon player used to join in, like playing a racially motivated song. Used to play that, their little, uh, that uh, Mama's Little Baby Loves Shortening Bread. Mama's Little Baby Loves Shortening Bread. And and, and only they have it. Riley's Little Baby Loves Shortening Bread. You know, and it was allowed to go on and nothing was ever done about it, you know. But but what little... Little did they know that just fired me up. I said, Hey, somebody's getting their ass kicked tonight because, you know, and that was my teachings from my grandfather and my, and my mother telling me like, if they're calling you names, if they're doing this, or they're trying to throw you off your game, you know? So it just sort of propelled me to do, to do, uh, you know, to be more successful. And, uh, like I said, I just, it was like water off a duck's back after a while. Yeah. and, And unfortunately in that era, um, there, there was really no one going to come to your defense really other than the way your you said your players defended you, but systematically the fact that that went on and nothing happened in terms of uh, at a higher level is um, yeah, really, really, really disappointing. Yeah. Let's talk about some positive spins on your identity and the impact you had playing the United States. And you talked about family and friends coming to watch you. Are there some stories you'd like to share in terms of, um, 
either fans that were racialized or young kids that you sort of knew you were having an impact on just, just the fact that, that, um, that you were playing minor pro and, and also in Washington? Well, you know, like, I, um, yeah, like I said, I mean, after my Washington years, I'll tell you, when I got sent to Hershey, I, I was hurt and I, I had, I had a, a change in attitude. I was, you know, I was sort of upset and two guys come down there, Ronnie, Ronnie shock and, uh, Freddie Stanfield. Uh, Freddie's gone now. God bless his soul. Uh, and they had a very, very positive attitude. These guys, I mean, Freddie Stanfield worked the power play with Bobby Orr. He was, Freddie was on one point, Bobby was on the other. Ronnie Schock was a good player. And, uh, you know, they came down, but they were making a hell of a lot more money than I was. And they just said, hey, we, you, you, you got to have fun wherever you're at. So they taught me to be a better pro. And as a result of that, I went on to be the captain of the Nova Scotia Voyagers, I went on to be the captain of the New Brunswick Hawks. I won a Calder Cup. I won a Turner Cup, you know, uh, and it's uh, once, you know, like I I just said, hey, I'm not going to let them put me down. I love playing hockey. So if I got to play at the American Hockey League level, I'm going to play at the best I could possibly play at. And, uh, you know, and I I always wanted to coach. And I knew I was a good coach and I knew I was a, a good student of the game. And, uh, but I could never get the opportunity. I got to run practices and things like that. And then they did, I did get uh, named assistant coach in the Edmonton Oilers chain, but that was another story there. I just, you know, it was just a, that was a, a bad experience. Uh, but now when we wouldn't have called a cup, I, I ran the practices. I put the systems in and I did apply for some jobs, but it was the doors were always, always shut in my face, you know? Yeah. And, let let me just circle back to your Calder Cup experience in 1982. You you won. Um, that was with Moncton. So you want to talk about that experience? Is that correct? Or was it Moncton, or was it Nova Scotia? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was Moncton, and uh, you know that we uh, we had a team. Orville Tessier was coaching us. Orville just passed. He was a great guy, and uh, you know Orville made the statement. He said the biggest mistake I made in my life was I didn't take Bill Riley to Chicago with me when I, I went to coach because Bill was, you know, Bill was a loyal guy. He wasn't after my job. He, and he was and the players loved him. So we ended up, we had Steve Larmer, Steve Logic, uh, you know, Mike Kozicki, Davey Ferries. We had a lot of good guys and, and, and Logic and Larmer were just rookies and they were high picks of the, of the Blackhawks and, uh, and a kid named a goaltender named Bobby Janosek and all these types of things. So we won the Calder Cup, and then those kids went up to play with the Blackhawks. And uh, they went into Pulver's office and said, "Look, what about Bill Riley?" And uh, Pulley said, uh, "Well, you know, Bill's getting a little long in the tooth now. He's too old to play." So we're not talking about playing. We're talking about coaching. He's a very, very good coach, and all us players love him. But the door was shut, you know what I mean? Type of thing. And, uh, uh, but the city of Moncton was a great place. I raised my family there. Um, Moncton and Riverview was a great place. Uh, you know, I probably in those years could have probably ran for the, for mayor of the city because I always, the time to put, to spend time with kids, sign autographs, play road hockey with them, 
you know, I always put, uh, you know, I would go run practices for junior teams and, and, uh, whenever, and if there was an appearance back in those days, shoppers drug mart used to put out a big calendar and we would go to the shoppers drug mart store in the various locations in the city and we would sign autographs. Well, some guys would go put in an hour and leave. I stayed right to the end every time. And, uh, I, I think it came back to benefit. Yeah, you know? definitely. Well, you certainly have a lot to be proud of in terms of the impact you had as a player and a coach. And um, um, it's interesting that time period you mentioned with your statistics when you were playing the AHL, these were all teams still feeding into NHL. It's still surprising you weren't called up with some of the numbers you put up, right? And uh, with Nova Scotia. Yeah, I think at one point in Nova Scotia, when I got called to Winnipeg, I was in the top five or so of the league scoring and uh let's see winnipeg was another story you know john ferguson had drafted jimmy mann and his and in his own image because jimmy was a big tough guy that put in put a lot of points on the board in the in the quebec league and uh, you know like uh you know unfortunately jimmy didn't didn't pan out you you like to see he's a first round pick and there's a lot of pressure for a first round pick on any at any level on any team but you know when I played Winnipeg, I went to training camp, had four goals, had four goals in one week in the training camp. Yet I got sent down and, you know, everybody talks about how hard I worked. And well, I mean, a guy you want to get on and talk about Bill Riley's Tommy McVie and uh, he can tell you, uh, but the thing was, was if I played, Jimmy didn't play. And uh, then they had a couple other high price guys that, that would, that didn't play. If I played, they're kind of committed to, right? Yeah. 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 And uh, if you look in Winnipeg, Jesus, uh, I remember they had in the paper, Bill Riley, Jude Duran, and Lyle Moffat continued to be the Jets' best best line game in and game out. And next thing you know, I'm back in Halifax, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's just, and again, I had to keep my mouth shut, right? Because there's still many kids of color playing the game. And, and uh, you know, the way the man would look at it is, oh, you're playing the race card. You're playing the race card. I never played the race card. I just wanted to play hockey and I was good enough to play and I was tough enough to play. And when you see, you know, you see a guy, uh, if you see some of those guys that played in the league that have a lot more games in than I do and have nowhere near the points, there's guys that played probably two to three times as long as I did and don't have as many points. So what you're saying is the perception of, um, some of the, um, coaches and, uh, uh, upper management still did not seem to have a comfortability with you playing as a person of color, as a black person, just didn't seem to be. Well, if, like I say, I go back to my, that my, my, uh, uh, my third year in Washington and, you know, I'm the fifth leading scorer on the team and I missed, you know, I missed, uh, 25 games with, uh, with that severed tendon. And, uh, I, I get sent to the minors right out of the training camp. Like, you know, that, and, and like I said, they were a team that wasn't very good still. And, uh, I get sent there and, and, uh, you know, I just, it was, it was like, uh, to me, what did I do wrong? You know, call me in the office. Cause I know I'm good enough to play. I know I'm tough enough. You know, uh, if anything, you could keep me for a tough guy, you know, type of thing. And which a lot of teams did. 
yet I just got the nine parts right out of training camp, and uh, I never ever got a chance to ask. Yeah, and it's still it's surprising during those years as well. I said this earlier about just the fact of other teams considering you as a free agent, and I don't know if that's because again the the pro team held all the cards and didn't want to to exercise it, but it just seems again with that many teams, twenty one teams in the league now. Why wasn't there another spot for you? I uh, I fought a guy in L.A. there, and I knocked him out with one punch. And, you know, I mean, that's that had to go around the league, uh, you know. But nobody would – I mean, it was like and, – and I never missed curfew. I never missed curfew in my life. Never in all the 10 years that I was in professional hockey, I never missed curfew, right? I was – I wasn't uh, – I wasn't – and I was in trouble – off the ice, I, I uh, you know, like I said, I, I was always on time. I was never late in ten years, you know, and and uh, so there was, you know, I just, it, it just, like I said, I guess I was a sacrificial lamb. But you know, when I when I see, uh, I see that all the the kids of color playing, you know, where be it indigenous kids or Asian kids or or, or black kids, I, you know, I said, well, hey, you know what? I, uh, I paved the way for them, right? So over time, Bill, have you become uh, friends with other uh, black uh, players or, or uh, other minority players in the league? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, Mike, Mike and I were always close, you know, and then I, I got to know Ray Newfeld a little bit, Tony McKegney, and uh, 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 what's the kid down in North Carolina, played in Nova Scotia, uh, Bernie Saunders, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, and like I just did stuff to help kids, and I didn't think nothing of it. I, now Bernie in his book wrote about when I got called to the National Hockey League. The first the first phone call I got before the game was from Bill Riley. Well, I had forgotten I'd done that for him, you know, to call him and tell him what to expect and how he should play the play the NHL game, and uh, you know, uh, you know, the famous. Tony McKegney, I mean, uh, Tony was too good to be in the minors. Tony, Tony McKegney should have never been in the minors, right? Paper thing. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you a bit of black history. One night in Binghamton, New York, Tony McKegney was the first star. Mike Marsden was the second star, and I was the third star. I think the first and only time, the first and only time in the history of professional hockey. You know, but I always, I always, you know, I always tried to keep positive with, uh, uh, you know, and I'll tell you, I helped a lot of, a lot of the white players. Too. I mean, you know, you, you talk, you talk to Steve Ludzik, you talk to Steve Larmer, you, uh, you talk to Mike McPhee, you know, these are all guys that, you know, I took under my wing and, and uh, helped them a lot uh, to, to make it to the, to the NHL. Yeah, you were a veteran player, right? Veteran player and also helping to show other players the the way on their next journey to the NHL during those years in the minors, right? So so you you've kept in touch with um the older players. Um any of the younger black players you've uh, recently connected with in recent years? I I haven't uh, I haven't got uh, I like I said, I'm down here on the East Coast. And most of the black players are from Old West or Ontario, a lot, a lot in Ontario. Like, you know, I, I seen Wayne Simmons in Washington last year and shook hands with him there. He was, you know, playing, he was dressed for the game and 
when they had me down for Black History Month, you know, and the one kid that I always wanted to meet, and I wanted to try to get a hold of him his first year of pro, or after his first year of pro, and and because uh, I seen I seen I seen the trouble coming right away, right, and uh, I wanted to get a hold of this kid somehow, and I always thought, why would the National Hockey League not hire Mike Marsden and I? to go around and talk to the teams and talk to the kids, not only at the NHL level, but at the minor league level. And and uh, my grandfather always said an ounce of preventions were the pound of cure. And uh, I seen, I knew the road that Evander Kane was heading down, right? And uh, I said, geez, I'd love to talk to that kid. He's such a talent. And I want to tell him how lucky he is and how gifted he is, you know, to, to be able to be a star player in the best league in the world and don't blow it type of thing. And, and, uh, you know, and then things just kept getting worse for him. And, uh, I just said, Jesus, Jesus, I, you know, if I had the, the assets or, or whatever to, to be able to go talk to this kid, uh, you know, I, yeah. Well, you, you certainly had a lot to offer with all the experience you had with your pro career and also the mentor and leadership role as a coach. We've talked about a number of things. We talked about your coaching, um, what are your thoughts now on, um, what do you think should happen or should continue to happen with regards to having, um, more diversity in the NHL? I, I have said before, there was a point in time where the NBA and NHL were at the same level of interest across both countries. And, um, that diversity and opportunity seemed to expand in other sports, but it seemed to fall a little bit behind in, in hockey. So what are your thoughts on uh, steps forward to uh, having more inclusion? Well, I, I just, like I said, I, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm an old guy now and, and uh, you know, uh, my ship has sailed. Uh, I, I mean, I still have, an, I, I have my, my hockey IQ is off the charts. I mean, like when it comes to assessing talents, you know, I told NHL scouts about players that they, oh, we don't like them. We don't like them. And I said, what is there not to like about them? And then that somebody else would draft that player and that player would be a star. And I'd go back to the NHL scouts. I said, I told you. I said, but I can't get a job working with you guys. But I said, I told you three or four players that you guys didn't like that are stars in the league, you know? And uh, I uh, I called... Uh, I played with Timmy Burke is with uh, San Jose and uh, I called Timmy. I said, Timmy, I got this kid playing for me. I said, nobody can take the puck from him. He's tough. He, he's good in the corners, good in front of the net. I said, he, he, he needs to get a little better skating, but he'll, uh, he will get better, you know, practicing every day. And, uh, and uh, the kid, I sent him to, to Ramuski in, uh, uh, well, Ramuski uh, basically scouted him at Christmas time. He went up there and I think he scored 20 some goals, beat everybody up in the league. And I kept telling uh, Timmy Burke about him. And right. And he said, well, we're going to Ramuski to look at this defenseman. We're thinking about taking him in the first round. And he said, so we're going to look at some film. I said, oh, geez, I said, I'm telling you this kid can play. They watched two films. Calls me from Ramuski. He says, we're going to take him. We're going to take him, you know, but like I said, I, 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 I've always not, I've always been able to know talent inside out. And, uh, uh, you know, like I remember when I was in the American league, like, uh, Ace Bailey, God bless his soul. And all the scouts would come to me. Billy, what players are the best players in the, in the, 
in the uh, AHL. And I'd tell him, right? I told him about Gerard Gallant. I said, Detroit doesn't know how good he is. Well, we know what Gerard done when he went to Detroit, right? But they could have got him for next to nothing. Um, it was the same thing with Keith Acton. I had him in Nova Scotia. He was a fourth-line player, sometimes wasn't even dressing. I told the coach to put him with me, and I said, listen, you skate is every bit as good as Kenny Lensman. I said, you you play this game that I'll teach you this pro game. You play this game, and don't worry about anybody touching. Nobody's going to touch you while I'm on your line. I went to dinner with uh, him and his agent, and uh, he said, Montreal has no plans for you, and you're going to be playing out your option. He went. He led. He ended up leading the Voyagers in scoring that year, or at very close to the top. Went to Montreal, had a hell of a training camp. It was one of their top scorers, and ended up playing. I told the Winnipeg Jets when I was there. I said, "You can get him for nothing. They got no plans for him." Wouldn't listen to me, and the rest is history, right? So, yeah. So missed opportunities, and and someone like you being a um, black Canadian in terms of um, all the experiences you had. Um, if it if it were today, someone like Bill Riley needs to be be in the game, whether it's at whatever level, junior, uh, NHL, whatever it may be. That that's what. Uh, oh, uh, that's what it seems like. Well, today, today, like I would, I would be, I'd be pretty assured of uh, probably being an assistant coach in the National Hockey League. I mean, I, I was that, yeah. I was that knowledgeable. Plus the fact, the respect that I got from the players, right. The respect, uh, if you were to talk to, you know, five of my teammates, ex-teammates, 10 of my ex-teammates, they're going to blow you away with the respect factor that they have for me because of my work ethic and the way I helped them. And, and it was always the team first, the team first. And I taught these, uh, these kids this, this type of thing. And, and uh, like I say, Stevie Ludzik, he, he wrote a book there. Uh, been there, done that or something like that. And he had a chapter in there on me. And uh, yeah. very grateful for, uh, but that was just the way. It's, it's very, very evident. The, the, the leadership and uh, uh, captaincy skills, all those pieces, very evident in terms of the influence you had. Yeah. Well, um, like I said, for the, for your peers, like, a bit, you know, there's no other way of putting not putting it back in the seventies, eighties, I was a black man and a white man's game. And for the black man on the team to be named captain, on two different teams in professional hockey. I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of, you know, speaks for itself. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to talk about then what, what did you end up doing then when you left coaching? Did, did you, is there another career you'd like to share with us that you, you took on in terms of what you're doing? Well, um, I, what you did or what you're doing now? Or? Yeah. There's one other thing I got to tell you, and then I'll tell you that when I used to come yeah. home from hockey, I would have, I had an old truck. And all the guys would take home their new sticks and they'd leave all the tape sticks behind. So I would throw all the tape sticks in the back of my hockey stick or in the back of my truck and any of the old hockey gloves and stuff. And I'd throw all that stuff in the back of my, my uh, vehicle. And my mother would, I'd call my, I'd talk to my mother every week. And she'd tell me, the kids are all waiting for you to come home. The kids are all waiting for you to come home. And they, they, they come every day to find out when I'm coming. So anyways, when I pulled into my, my mom's place, there'd be like 25 kids here waiting for me because they knew I had all these sticks and gloves and things that I was going to give them, right? Type of thing. So that was always, it was like Christmas. Like and some of the guys. Christmas in the summertime. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. 
Well, the other career I had, I after I got co- done co- uh, coaching, and uh, there was no money to be made, I went to Fort McMurray and worked in the oil sands for five years. You know, in minus 40s, I worked in the oil sands uh, there, like I said, for five years. And uh, I was there maybe two months before when the the uh, company recognized my leadership skills and how I could handle men and, and multitask. And I ended up being a foreman, uh, you know, with very little experience in their all fans, but because of the way the guys took to me, I, I, you know, I, I ended up getting a job. So I put five years in there and, and uh, you know, but that's, and then I just walked away from that. It was, <laughs> I made four times the money in the oil fans that I made in the national hockey league. Oh, wow. Jeez. <laughs> so walked away from that and then just sort of eased into more retirement, I guess. Eh? Yeah, I just looked at it. I mean, I said I was getting close to six, uh, what was it, 62 or something. And I just said, hey, uh, you know, uh, it's time to go fishing and and it's time to go, you know, just start to enjoy life a little bit. And Last question doesn't necessarily relate with you, but there was a segment on Hockey Night in Canada. Um, and I remember seeing the story about where your daughter went to clean the tombstone of Bill Barocco famous Toronto Maple Leaf who, who passed away. What was it weeks after they won the Stanley cup up Northern Ontario? Yeah. He, yeah, he was, in, he won, won the, I think he scored the Stanley cup winning goal and then they went fishing and they got lost. Playing went down and they never found him for years later. So I knew the story well. And then the tragically hip wrote a song about it, 50 mission cap. And uh, anyways, uh, so I was in watching Ron McClain always been a big fan of Ron McLean's and uh, Don Cherry's. And uh, anyways, when uh, I, they were doing the, doing the clip on him, and I had seen his picture before a couple of times when they'd done stories on him, you know, just a young guy so full of life and, and uh, you know, type of thing. And, and uh, so when they were doing the, uh, the uh, special on him, they showed where he was buried at up in Timmins, Ontario. And they showed his grave, and the grave had all kinds of moss growing on it, and that type of thing. And uh, that struck me. I said, "Jesus, that's not right." You know, this guy's a, you know, was a was a national hero and type of thing, and and uh, scored a cup-winning goal, and just a young guy full of life and vinegar, uh, life, and he he got his life cut so sh- short so early. It reminded me a lot of my son. So I called my daughter up, and I said. Uh, I need you to do a favor for me. She said, yeah, what do you, what, what's that, Dad? I said, I need you to find, go to the graveyard in uh, Timmins, Ontario, and find Bill Barocco's grave. She says, what? I said, yeah, he's a hockey player. I said, you Google, and you'll find out after. I want you to go find his grave, and I want you to clean his grave up for me. Make a thing. And she went, and she found the grave, and she cleaned. Not only did she clean up, his grave she cleaned up his mother and father's grave as well and uh so that's what it was like i just you know i just seen it and i just thought that was the, the right thing to do yeah very um very special act and and very uh very commendable on your part to uh to pay it back to uh to a hockey hero as well so um Bill, I'm going to ask you to um, if you could share some advice you have for young hockey players today. Well, the thing is, the first thing I would tell them is you, you go to school and you get as much education as you can. And 
you uh, you know you live a good life. You respect your parents because you only have one mother and you only have one father, and uh, you know you and your work ethic. It doesn't matter how much skill you have, how much talent you have. If you're lazy and you don't work, you're not gonna you're not gonna be successful. So develop a strong work ethic in whatever endeavor you're at, and you will go far in life. That's really wise advice. Um, I can't tell you how much it's been a privilege to interview you, um, Bill. You're a real trail, trailblazer, and I think um, more people should hear about the story. And uh, I think we've only touched the surface on all the things that you did through your your hard work and perseverance all those uh, years. And just uh, remarkable, not, not starting hockey until 12 years old and all those accomplishments you went through. And um, again, wishing back, um, I guess we can reflect upon um, wishing some things would have been better for you. That's for sure. But but uh, you certainly have lots to hang your your hat on as a trailblazer in, in the game. So thank you very much for uh, being on our podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. And like I said, my next my next adventure is, is I got to write a book, find a, uh, an editor, because I think my life story would be, uh, be, be one, uh, one hell of a movie, you know, uh, because uh, like I said, I, I grew up in a tough neighborhood, so it would be uh, quite a story to tell as well, right? Uh, definitely. Uh, so many people should hear about uh, your remarkable story. It's uh, really incredible. We're proud to be working with Hockey Equality. Hockey Equality is on a mission to create diversity at all levels of the game of hockey. By lowering financial barriers for BIPOC female and other equity deserving youth hockey players. If you've been moved by the stories shared on this podcast and want to help make hockey accessible to all, check out HockeyEquality.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to share this story with your kids, then check out My Hockey Hero. It's shorter and suitable for the whole family. You can click the link in the show notes or find it wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Podstarter production. production.